This episode of We the People is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, a new video learning service featuring more than 5,000 lectures taught by award-winning professors and experts. To begin your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash people. I am Michael Gerhardt, a constitutional law professor at the University of North Carolina and have the honor of being scholar-in-residence at the National Constitution Center and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen, the center's president and CEO, is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Today we discuss recent controversies on the campuses of Yale University, which happens to be my alma mater, and the University of Missouri, involving the First Amendment, the 14th Amendment, free speech, and hate speech. Just as background, you should know that at Yale, the controversy started after an email from its Intercultural Affairs Committee encouraging students to show restraint in their Halloween costume selections. Two professors objected, saying universities, quote, have become places of censure and prohibition, unquote. That debate is still ongoing. And at Missouri, the controversy started over the school's response to several racial incidents and led to protests that forced the school's president and its chancellor to resign. In this podcast, we'll be looking closely at the constitutional and not the political issues involved in these two debates that have caught the nation's attention. Joining me to discuss the issues are two terrific experts in constitutional law. Erwin Chemerinsky is Dean and Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Dean Chemerinsky is also a member of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. Welcome, Erwin. And Greg- Thank you. And Greg Lukianoff is president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Greg is a graduate of American University and Stanford Law School, where he's focused on First Amendment and constitutional law. He's also the author of Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate, and Freedom from Speech. I'd like to thank both of you for being here today, and I'd like to go ahead and get started uh, with Greg. And Greg, tell us uh, how uh, about the challenges in trying to frame the constitutional issues which may actually be present in these different protests across the country. Yeah, it is. It is actually um, uh, kind of hard to follow to a degree, even for those of us who do this all day. Partially because there's there's protests going on, and well, look at this point to be at least two dozen different campuses, and and looks like there's there's going to be more. Um, and uh, there was an article in the New Yorker talking about you know the free speech angle the constitutional sort of First Amendment angle being a distraction from the race issues. Meanwhile, those of us who work primarily in First Amendment always think everything else is a distraction from uh, free speech and constitutional issues. Uh, but the truth is, the, and, and one of the problems for the, to a degree for both universities and the protesters, is that um, uh, is in some cases the uh, students are using their First Amendment rights at public universities um, in order to um, protest um, and uh, to, to demand um, a speech policing that probably would be shot down by a court uh, because consistently, um, you know, since 19, since the sort of so-called heyday of speech codes back in the 80s, you know, both hate speech codes or other attempts to to uh, police merely on you know offensive speech have been shot down. Now the issues at Yale are also different too because um, Yale is not bound by the First Amendment. Of course, it's a private institution. However, you know, fires overall. Uh, stance on that is it is also a school that promises uh, that makes really glowing promises of freedom of speech, and so when we saw the incident involving 
uh, Erica and Nicholas Christakis. Um, and it looked like, you know, there was a good chance that sending out this Halloween costume would lead to a series of events that would lead to them, we were afraid, losing their jobs. Um, we still thought that was, you know, uh, 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 an issue of freedom of speech, if not a constitutional issue. But the good news in that case is that um, yesterday, or actually I think late the day before that, the university came out and said very clearly and unambiguously that the uh, Christakis will not be loose, will not be charged with anything. They will, their jobs are not under threat. So, Erwin, uh, what is your take on sort of the challenges of trying to frame this issue? I want to start with something Greg said in passing. Remember, if we're talking about the First Amendment, that applies only to public colleges and universities. Now, there may be other bodies of law that apply freedom of speech to private universities. It might be that the student handbook, which is a contract the student does so. It might be the private university's own policy. But when we're talking about the First Amendment, we're only talking about government institutions. Also, I think we have to be careful if we're trying to say there's a tension between racial equality and freedom of speech. I think to a large extent, one serves the other. I think I freedom of speech is a very powerful force for racial equality. And I think the demonstrations that we've seen at places like the University of Missouri are using freedom of speech to push for racial equality. The tension comes if the university in any way tries to infringe freedom of speech, even in the name of racial equality. If the university tries to prohibit or discourage speech in a way that we said to chill expression, that's when the issue arises. And I don't think that's what we've been seeing, at least with regard to these recent incidents. Students have asked for that, but it hasn't yet led to the infringement or punishment of speech. Now, uh, let me take you a little uh, into a little more detail about the Missouri situation. Um, so, uh, Greg, let me ask about your opinion on the appropriateness of uh, what I understand to be the Missouri Police Department's alert that students yeah. report incidents of, quote, hateful and or hurtful speech or actions to the police. Yeah, that, that, that definitely, in our opinion, was was going too far, to say the least. And what the police said was that we should be on the lookout for hateful and hurtful speech. And they even conceded in, the, um, in their directive that, um, you know, we can't criminally prosecute it, but universities can prosecute um, hate, hateful or hurtful speech. Now, that's not right on the law. Um, you, know, it, you know, certainly hateful is more controversial, but still even hateful speech is protected. But hurtful speech, that's, that's, a, that's a definition so vague and broad that it absolutely sweeps in a tremendous amount of, of protected speech. So we were really troubled when the you know, University of Missouri police were actually putting that out. And it's not the only school um, that has uh, directed, um, or even local police department that have directed uh, students to be on the lookout, or police officers to be on the lookout for speech that would be absolutely publicly protected. And when it comes to yeah, the um, you know the tension, I, 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 I overwhelmingly agree with Erwin on this that uh, the, the students have freedom of speech and First Amendment at, at, at public colleges to thank for um, you know as a potent tool for achieving you know uh, racial equality and, 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 and diversity. But you do have situations like University of Massachusetts in Amherst, which is a public college, which is bound by the First Amendment, when among the protesters' demands was zero tolerance for hate speech, which, as a public university, you know, Amherst can't actually, um, you know, have a uh, have a speech code for uh, that, that merely punishes speech because it's hateful or hurtful, um, and condemnation and punishment for students who po posted free speech and all lives matter poster. And you, and if you could see these all lives matter posters, they're absolutely you know protected 
uh, expression. So, so we have been running a little bit um, into uh, situations in which uh, where students are asking for things that the, that the university can't do. So, Erwin, is it possible to have a zero tolerance of hate speech on a, a public campus? No. Hate speech, hurtful speech, is protected by the First Amendment. Every effort that I know of by a college to adopt a hate speech code, especially public college university, has been struck down by the courts. Now, I want to be clear about what I think that college and universities can do and what they can't do. I think there is no First Amendment right to threaten or harass individuals, including based on race or religion or sexual orientation. There's no right to destroy or deface the property of another. And I think a campus, of course, can forgive it and punish true threats, harassment, destruction and defacement of property. But what a college can't do is punish speech just because it expresses hate, just because it's hurtful. It is speech protected by the First Amendment, including on college campuses. So, Erwin, uh, if I if I have understood the news story correctly, I understand that at Harvard somebody put some black tape over um, uh, some uh, na- professors' portraits and, and names. Is is that go too far? Well, Mark, once you're putting black tape over something, then it's defacing property. I don't think there's a First Amendment right, even assuming this was a public university, to, to right. say somebody else's property. Putting black tape over it is pretty minor. There was an incident at the University of Missouri where somebody put a swastika in feces on a wall of a bathroom stall. Right. I think that that's something that if you could know who did it could be punished. So obviously, the punishment has to be based on the severity of the offense. The more it's destroyed or defaced the property, the other, the greater the punishment should be. But there's no First Amendment right to destroy or deface somebody else's property. So, Greg, Greg, I would take it you would agree that at some point speech, if it, it can be characterized fairly as conduct, is regulable. So mm-hmm. are, is it possible to define that point? Um, you know, I actually I, I find a lot of these cases really not. It, people sometimes think they're very difficult to distinguish, but uh, as Erwin was pointing out, you know, if it's vandalism, it's vandalism. You know, the the, the, the poop swastika, you know, was um, uh, was not lawful for a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which are health code violations. You know, and also in the, in the Missouri case, one thing that that I think you know deserves some attention was there's been a lot of focus on the uh, on the app, uh, the website slash app Yik Yak. Um, about its ability for people to anonymously talk to each other and in some cases say, you know, awful things. But that, there was a situation in which apparently people were, were actually saying real threats, saying that they're going to, you know, try to kill black people and saying it in a, in a much worse way than that. Um, and those and two, then, uh, I believe there were students. Um, the, the, the police were, was actually able to figure out who these people were and they were arrested. So, yeah, threats always cross the line. And that's something that, that, that we've had to repeat a lot, is that sometimes it seems like people aren't clear that no society, to my knowledge, has ever protected threats, nor does the U.S. Well, Greg, so in terms of the doctrine, it would be a true threat that, that would yeah. be something that would be regulable. So is right. yelling and screaming at somebody uh, to try and overwhelm their, their voice or message, is that too much speech? You know, definitely, um, as far as a matter of principle, we definitely fall down on the side of, you know, hear people out, um, just not as a constitutional issue, but as far as, like, a good way to, you know, uh, to have a productive conversation is try to hear people out and actually respond to what they're saying. 
And certainly, you know, yelling in someone's face in certain contexts, you know, taking the, uh, the interesting thing about threats doctrine is that it's always contextual. And you can imagine situations in which someone might say, I was intimidated, which is another way of saying I was experiencing a true threat, where if you look at it in context, which included yelling in someone's face, you'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, that actually looked like you were, what you were really saying was you were just about to hit this person. And then, of course, there's also harassment, um, you know, which we you know, define at fire. We usually use the uh, definition um, that was used by the Supreme Court in the uh, Davis decision, which actually applied to K-12, through but they talk about, you know, targeted, severe, persistent, pervasive um, a discriminatory action against an individual um, is, uh, is harassment. And, and it's not so much considered an exception to freedom of speech as much as not speech, which, because it's just a pattern of behavior that's discriminatory that's directed in an, in, at, at an individual. And we actually think that actually draws a very sensible distinction. Erwin, uh, in terms of the threat doctrine, so to speak, the case law, does a threat have to be objectively established or is it subjective? It depends on what circuit you're in and what state you're in at this point. There's actually a split among the circuits as to whether what the true threat is determined from an objective perspective, would a reasonable person feel threatened, or subjective to the speaker intended. There's a case cited by the Supreme Court this past spring, Alanis versus the United States, where the issue was fully briefed and argued, and then the Supreme Court didn't decide it, resolving the case just on a matter of federal statutory law. Um, my own view, which is the less speech-protective view here, is that it should be the objective, not the subjective standard. But I think if a reasonable person would feel threatened by the speech, then it's not protected by the First Amendment. It's just too hard to prove subjective motivation. So I should mm. say in reality, I don't know in most cases it would make that much difference. I think when you've got true threats, you would probably be able to meet both standards before a jury. So one, yeah. and one of the interesting Greg, you things agree with that? In, okay. in, in harassment cases, you end up having you, you end up having um, a lot of precedent talking about essentially trying to use both, where essentially it both has to be uh, um, objectively offensive and, and also has to be subjectively offensive. Now, of course, that's with, with regards to offense, which is inherently you know subjective. Uh, but the idea with that is that um, something would it would have to be something a reasonable person would find uh, offensive. Um, I wonder how. I would love to know. How do you think if they had decided on the merits, Irwin? I know how you think it should have turned out, but how do you think it would have? I don't know. Um, it's hard to say. This is a court that generally is very protective of speech, except when the institutional interests of the government are at stake, like yeah. when it's speech by students or government employees mm-hmm. or within the military. And so, based on other cases from this court, that including dealt with offensive speech, I think it may have come out in a more speech-protective direction, saying you have to have subjective intent. And, of course, the court did hold that as a matter of federal statutory law, the law that makes it a federal crime that threatens state commerce requires that there be proof of consciousness of guilt, subjective intent. It's not enough to show that a reasonable person would feel threatened. So but that's just interpreting the federal statute. Right. And so, Erwin, in terms of the, the, the doctrine we've been talking about with threats, for example, at a public university, uh, the public officials, of course, are state officials. W- would they be treated? So would they, in a sense, get um, some kind of special treatment from the court or courts precisely because they're basically government officials trying to run a campus? Well, what the court has said is that a government employee has no protection for the First Amendment when the government employee is speaking on the job in the scope of duties. So 
or a chancellor or a university provost made certain statements in the scope of duties and was on the job, and they were disciplined for those statements, there'd be no First Amendment protection. But what we're talking about here, I think, is what happens when a public university punishes a student for speech. There, the student's speech is protected by the First Amendment, I think, unless it meets the standard that we're talking about. It's a threat, it's harassment, it's a of the property. Uh, Greg, we're going to turn to you next, but we're going to take a short break before that. At this point, we'd like to take a break and hear from our center's CEO, Jeff Rosen, about our exciting partnership with The Great Courses, and then we'll resume with this great exchange about constitutional issues in a few moments. I'm a big fan of The Great Courses. I love learning about so many things. That's why I'm excited about the new The Great Courses Plus video learning service. It has unlimited access to thousands of fascinating subjects. The Great Courses Plus has nearly 5,000 video lectures in subjects like history, science, photography, and more. Taught by award-winning professors and experts, with The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, at any time, from anywhere. My listeners get a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, completely free for one month. I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus. Sign up now for your free one-month trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash people. Hi, this is Michael Gerhardt again, and let's resume with our discussion with Erwin Chemerinsky and Greg Lukianov. Well, let me ask you, Greg, about... Um, and obviously I'll get your response to this as well, Erwin, but first, Greg, um, the issue about whether it's even possible to create what some students are asking for, which is a safe space on campus, yeah. a, a place where they will be safe from racism and other offensive speech. Um, is that, first of all, permissible, Greg, and secondly, is it possible? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating question, um, and it definitely, you know, I don't have an easy answer for it, but, but the... Uh, you know, the answer is, of course, it depends, but there is irony, you know, wrapped up in that since we spent such a long time defeating university-imposed speech zones that it seems to be sort of the imposition of student uh, uh, zones that are free from speech. <laughs> right. And so, Erwin, do you think, I, um, you know, I know you may, it's possible maybe even as a dean you face this, is a safe space even possible? Uh, to... Well, let's be clear. Let's go with the First Amendment rules. Okay. There can be time, place, and manner restrictions on speech, mm-hmm. right? So the campus can say, this particular place is for public speech, but this place we're going to restrict speech more. On bulletin boards, we have a free speech board, but we can also say you can't put announcements on doors of classrooms because we don't want the clutter and the fire hazard. But time, place, and manner restrictions have to be content-neutral, they have to serve an important government purpose and lead adequate alternative places for speech. So I don't think that a college or university thing, here is a place that will allow all speech, but we won't allow racist and homophobic speech. That's a content-based restriction. Now, could the university say, this is a space for quiet study, and we're not going to allow public, we're not going to allow speech here just so everybody can have a quiet space? Sure, it can do that. Libraries do that all the time. But I don't think they can define what speech they prohibit based on the content of the speech, including 
So, Greg, let me uh, just, I'm a law professor, so I'm compelled to come up with a hypothetical. Let me make you a dean as well, uh, <laughs> a president, <laughs> provost, whatever, you, what, whatever, whatever you'd like to be. Um, and the question I'm asking you is, say you're faced with some of these protests that are going on in Missouri, or for that matter, Yale, mm-hmm. but you're at a public university. How do you, th- what, what, how would you try and... Um, deal with that speech, or how would you try to handle it in a way, or channel it in a way that you think would be constructive and consistent with the First Amendment? You know, I think that um, I, I don't want to be so arrogant to assume that I'd be handling it much better than a lot of the um, university presidents who are currently sort of floundering with how precisely to address it. Uh, but I do think there are clear lines here and there, and to, and to, to transition back some, to some degree about the problem of safe spaces, um, is that uh, safe spaces you know, they don't really have a, a, a legal meaning yet. We don't really know what on earth a safe space is, um, you know, and so we're, we're, we're struggling to figure out, you know, is it a time, place, and manner restriction? Is it simply a private space? Is it simply, you know, is it like, you know, as Erwin said, is it like the library? Right. Um, and and so, so we don't, not too hard on ourselves, we should understand that there is no clear definition of what safe spaces are. And the reason why the media took... Um, such a t- paid such attention to the Mizzou case was because what they were trying to say at Mizzou um, was uh, the reason why Mizzou ended up turning into more into something of a free speech incident was because they uh, because faculty members and students got together to prevent student press and other journalists from covering uh, an encampment that was in, on, on the public uh, on the very public center quad of the University of Missouri at, at, at Mizzou. And what's interesting about that, and this actually brings it back a little bit to law, though not necessarily constitutional law, is that my organization, FIRE, had helped the Missouri legislature pass a law that actually said um, that the open areas on campus are presumptively um, a, 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 a public for, at least with regards to students um, and, and the faculty members. Um, and so this has been our attempt to sort of roll back the move towards, in some cases, what are absurd uh, time, place, and manner restrictions that don't hold up very well in court, which are also known as speech zones. Um, and I haven't really seen a, a, too many uh, cases get to the Supreme Court that really address the ones on I actually haven't seen any that address the ones on campus. But to give you an example of how ridiculous some of these can be, uh, a case that we were involved in back in 2003 involved Texas Tech University's uh, declaration that um, only a 20-foot-wide gazebo uh, would be the free speech zone on campus for what is physically one of the biggest universities on on campus. And uh, even though they had expanded the speech zone by the time this actually went to litigation, um, in a case called Roberts v. Harrigan, um, a judge made pretty short work of how this was overly restrictive. This didn't even match, um, you know, the, the pretty permissive norms of time, place, and manner restrictions. So, Earl, what is what is the school's role here um, in trying to prevent students from offending and harassing each other? So, we've talked about threats, obviously, and, and we've got agreement here that a true threat would obviously be not just inappropriate, but could be regulable. Um, but I'm trying to figure out: does it does is there an affirmative role in a sense for um, uh, school administrators to try and model or take the lead in trying to sort of talk to students about how not to offend or her, um, each other through speech? Absolutely. Our conversation today and so much of the discussion of this issue is focused on when can a college punish student speech? Well, that ignores it as one of those powerful tools that universities have is to speak themselves. And so universities can proclaim there are principles of community. When there's a racist or a sexist or 
recently, is emphasized that the government itself has the right to speak, and that government speech can't violate the free speech clause of the First Amendment. And I think one of the most important things that college administrators can do is to proclaim the kind of community they want to be, and to speak out against incidents that are inconsistent with that. Greg, do you agree with that? You know, I, 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 I do to a degree, um, but I do. Uh, I always worry when um, the, the 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 government speech ends up sounding like you will be punished, and that is not tolerated at our university. So we, we're always, we're, there was an incident um, many years ago, and in, in, in involving uh, the uh, involving Graham Spanier at University of Pennsylvania, where he uh, publicly condemned a Republican party, um, uh, a Republican. Uh, party, literally like a Halloween party, where someone had worn a, a, a Nazi uniform. And I feel like he actually got the, the, the balance exactly right. He said, I condemn it, it's protected, um, but this is, you're making fools of yourself and, you know. Um, but in other cases, I've seen universities uh, sound like they're trying, really trying to sort of establish, you know, this is, the, uh, this is a, the university's official orthodoxy. And I think that ends up being in tension with, uh, uh, with the necessary sort of openness of academic freedom. Not necessarily a constitutional issue, but definitely if a university president is saying, you know, this is the position of the university, that, um, that ends up running into the idea, like, shouldn't we be allowed to, you know, as the Yale Woodward statement says, mention the unmentionable, question the unquestionable, et cetera? So, so Greg, I just want to sort of zero in on that. So, you um, would would it follow from what you're saying? It would be inappropriate then for an administrator to try and counsel students on what might offend other students. You know, um, I think that it's, it's it's a balancing act. I definitely think that um, that when you when you put when when the standards offensiveness it ends up being so subjective and ends up um, uh, necessarily taking on a, 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 a viewpoint that you, you end up in a difficult position. Now, certainly, I, I want to be clear. I think university um, administrators can do that, but I do think that if they, um, if you create a situation, I mean, Eugene Volokh calls this censorship envy. You know, essentially, like when you say, I'm going to make sure that nobody offends, you know, this student here, that you end up in a sort of race to the bottom to say, like, I, well, if I actually have to pre- prevent every student on campus from being offended, that's kind of an impossible job and leaves me in a situation where um, I don't know how we're actually going to get the business of a university, which is to you know, challenge dogmas and challenge assumptions um, done. So, Erwin, so I, I want to now put you into a hypothetical situation, which I'm going to trust will remain hypothetical. Um, <laughs> our, our, our friend and fellow um, law professor, now president of Princeton Chris Eisgruber, a wonderful uh, person and wonderful um, legal scholar, among many other things, um, has had a sit-in in in his office at Princeton. Um, And I'm wondering to what extent, let's assume that uh, we're now talking about a public university, um, to what extent is is it permissible to have a sit-in? Is that that conduct or is that uh, expressive speech? The reality is there is no First Amendment right to occupy space like that. So if the university wanted to say, basically, you're trespassing by interfering with the ongoing operations of the office, they can do so. That said, that doesn't mean they should do that. I think think one of the things that universities learned well by the late 1960s is one of the best things to do is to let the students sit in rather than arrest them for sitting in, arresting them just to dictate more conflict. But no, there's not a First Amendment right to sit in in my office or your office or Chris Gruber's, Ice Gruber's office. But that doesn't mean that the university should use its power and have them arrested and prosecuted. 
So, Greg, um, I know you probably will agree with that. I want to ask you about a a slightly different circumstance. Uh, I want to go back to sort of the kind of speech which might uh, test uh, whether or not it's uh, permissive. Um, We obviously have a number of laws, particularly under the 14th Amendment and statutes passed pursuant to the 14th Amendment, that try to eradicate racial discrimination. Um, So would would speech, um, robust as it might be, that might advocate sort of the return of segregation um, mm-hmm. or um, any such thing, would that, would that cross a line and be impermissible? You know, it's one of those things when I try to explain, you know, the, the constitutional law and try to come up with sort of broad principles, um, you know, to wildly oversimplify and probably horrify Erwin, um, I, I generally am able to at least come to the idea that the closer something is to the expression of mere opinion, um, the, the more absolute, the, the closer to absolutely protected it is. Indeed, I can't think of an expression of pure opinion um, that, uh, uh, that that would actually be unprotected. Um, but when it comes, uh, but the more uh, something becomes action-like, the less likely it is to be. So, like even if you look at the existing. Um, exceptions to, uh, for, to, to First Amendment law, even the categorical approach, a lot of them, you know, for example, child pornography, that's, that's an appeal to the idea that in the creation of child pornography, you know, had to be done that was, it, was in itself an abuse of a child. And so when you look at, at, at the categorical approach, um, which, uh, which the U.S., uh, which uh, the Supreme Court takes in, in looking at exceptions to the First Amendment, um, it has been a general rule of thumb that the more action-like something is, um, the, the most likely is supposed to be protected. So you take incitement, you know, um, the Brandenburg standard, um, which you know is probably the highest incitement standard in the in the world, at least as far as I'm familiar with. Um, which really says that something has to be imminent. You have to be really sort of advocating imminent lawless action right now, um, and that's a, that is a tough standard. But at the same time, you know, in other countries, that's that wouldn't even be considered an exception to free speech. That's just considered not speech. Um, let me. So, Erwin, let me sort of uh, pose this question to you in a little different way. We have laws, obviously, that would restrict a racially or sexually hostile environment, particularly a work environment. Um, and so to what extent, then, could the speech that is occurring on campuses now be construed as the kind of speech which might be regulable precisely because it would violate laws against, um, let's say, hostile work environments? And I think that there are really hard questions there that have never been decided by the court. Just making somebody feel uncomfortable isn't enough to be a harassment. It's the nature of campuses that will expose the many ideas that might make us feel uncomfortable. I'm going to go back to something that Greg said, going back to the Supreme Court's case in Davis. When it is speech that's directed at someone, when it's pervasive, then you get closer to what's harassment. Um, this has come up in some instances in terms of sexually explicit material in the workplace. What if I had sexually explicit photos in my office on the wall? I don't. And women students said they feel harassed and uncomfortable coming to talk to me. Does that violate Title IX and constitute harassment? Um, at what point does it become harassment? We're here dealing with the issues where there's some clear cases, but a lot of gray area that's unresolved by the law. And so that's, is that gray area, Greg, here in any way uh, so being explored under the current circumstances? 
and under the current circumstances, um, you know, there's been so many cases that I'd, I'd have to give uh, give the answer, the honest answer. If I don't know because it's impossible to, uh, to, to so far for me to actually keep up with all the different movements and what all the different claims are. It definitely seems so far from looking at the cases that they seem to be in a lot of cases they're either talking about very clearly protected speech or very or, or more often very clearly not. You know, like things that are actually threats, things that are uh, things that are actually uh, vandalism, things that um, or intimidation. Um, but I would say the, the 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 thing that we have noticed, you know, and I've been doing this since 2001, is this sort of ambiguity around what where the line is for harassment. Um, is one of the major questions on campus. Um, what, where, where does it end and begin? And a lot of the sort of like sillier, more ridiculous cases I've seen have been claims that you know what what no constitutional lawyer would deny are un- are fully protected speech being sort of recharacterized as uh, as harassment. And so that, that's why you always have to be really careful about carefully defining what your um, you know, exceptions to or what you deem to be not speech, because it's amazing how quickly people who just want to, how strong sort of the, in, the, the instinct of sort of a stifle speech that we don't like is, and how quickly it will be used uh, against, you know, in, in an opportunistic way, at least by some, um, just to stop the opinions that they don't want to hear. So, Erwin, uh, is there anything with that uh, about that you would disagree with? No, I very much agree that I think that there's always the impulse try to stop the speech we don't like, that we don't need the First Amendment to protect the speech we like. If we need the First Amendment for the speech we don't like. We'll always tolerate that if we like. Exactly. And of course, the line at which something becomes harassment is a very difficult one to draw. And courts have generally tried to stay away from that, try to resolve those cases on other grounds. But I'm going to agree very much with Greg. Just making somebody feel uncomfortable isn't enough for harassment. Ideas are always protected by the First Amendment. Opinions are always protected. On the other hand, there's a point at which speech is directed at another person, that the behavior becomes so pervasive that it is harassment, and that's not protected by the First Amendment. Well, you two have been so agreeable here. Um, you're, uh, you're, <laughs> you're an extraordinary model for the rest of us, and our time, I think, is running short. But let me give each of you um, a few, just a few moments in the end to sort of ask, try to answer one other question. I'll start with Greg. Um, so how do you foresee this playing out in terms of the law, in terms of constitutional law, some of the, the, these protests on campus? Uh, and, and what do you think is going to be the takeaway at the end of it? You know, I, 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 I honestly don't know because I suspect that, there's, that we're going to see a lot more of, of these protests. I think the courts have been very good on free speech for, for pretty much for, for most of my, uh, my my career, with some notable exceptions that we mentioned earlier, you know, Garcetti v. Sadeo, I'm not a big fan of. I think that under the current court, I don't see a major change towards making uh, restrictions on speech more subjective. I don't think we're looking at Europe right now and saying, you know, oh my goodness, they really have this nailed with their uh, with, with their blasphemy laws or their or, or their hate speech laws. I, I don't see that happening. I am, however, concerned that to a degree. Um, we've let time, place, and manner restrictions get a little, get, get, get so sort of loosey-goosey, to, to use a very legal technical term, um, that they end up being uh, sort of the, the exception that people can drive a truck through. Um, so I, I think they'll probably need a little bit better uh, granular explanation of what, what acceptable time, place, and manner restrictions are. And I, of course, hope that they err more on the side of, 
uh, being uh, being more permissive of speech. Now, of course, when you have those kind of issues come up, you know, at the actual physical Supreme Court, when they're in front of the Supreme Court, you'll notice that the court is suddenly a lot less speech protective <laughs> than they would be otherwise. Um, so, I, I, but I'm, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll will continue to be, you know, the, the, the most protective uh, country in the world when it comes to freedom of speech. So, Erwin, are, are we headed in any way to, to, to courts here? Is it too soon to, to, to know? And, and where do you, how do you see this playing itself out? I think that what started in places most recently, like University of Missouri and Yale, Claremont College's Princeton, is going to spread to campuses across the country. I think that the need for more inclusion of minority students, better treatment of minority students on campuses, is endemic throughout the United States and it can be expressed. And I think there's two ways in which that could implicate the First Amendment. I predict that some student protesters are going to get disciplined by universities, arrested and maybe prosecuted, and they will raise the First Amendment as a defense as protection for their speech. Just like student protests in the 1960s, but the students being disciplined and prosecuted, it seems inevitable it's going to happen here. And then the First Amendment comes up in terms of their First Amendment rights. So, I think the other is something that Greg identified. I think we will see pressure from minority students for restrictions on speech, hate speech codes, punishment for so-called microaggressions. And then I think we're going to get a whole other wave of litigation like we saw 20 years ago where hate speech codes were promulgated and got challenged in the court. The University of California Board of Regents has set up a committee to consider creating some form of hate speech code. And I assure you, if they promulgate it, however well-intentioned, it's going to get challenged in the courts. So there is another show in our future as well, I think. Um, This is... (laughs) Obviously, many. A, a to- many. This is a topic, a subject that's not just important, but it's one, of course, that we will continue to talk about at the National Constitution Center. You both have been terrific. Thank you so much for your insights and sharing your time with us. A pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Yanachi. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash constitutionctr, and in our Twitter feed at constitutionctr. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. The National Constitution Center would also like to thank our corporate partners, including Citizens Bank, which has generously sponsored our Liberty Medal ceremony since 2006, including our most recent ceremony honoring His Holiness the Dalai Lama.